it is, it's a joy to bring you love and greetings from your brothers and sisters at Covenant Fellowship Church. Um, and Matt described it well. I'm one of the pastors at Covenant Fellowship, but my role is kind of unique in that I lead a separate nonprofit we've established called Covenant Mercies, uh, which exists to build partnerships with indigenous churches in the developing world to care for orphans. That's, a, that's just the center of our mission. Uh, thus far, we're working in Uganda, Ethiopia, Zambia, and most recently, Liberia, um, serving about 1,650, almost 1,700 sponsored children in those countries, uh, fatherless children working through those indigenous partners. So I look forward to telling you more about the ministry on the tail end of, of the sermon. But I always love to begin in God's Word, remind ourselves what is our biblical motivation for this type of ministry. Uh, so if you're with me in Luke chapter 14, I want to begin reading in verse 12. Uh, and just to set the scene, Jesus has been invited to a dinner party. He's at the table of a Pharisee as the account begins. He, Jesus, said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Well, we all know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of an act of kindness, of an act of generosity that seems to have strings attached. Uh, that seems to have a, an ulterior motive that's really driving it. A kindness that seems motivated more by a spirit of self-interest than a true spirit of generosity. Uh, the classic example of this for me is in the Philadelphia area, these guys that I'll refer to as the squeegee guys. I don't know if you've seen this phenomenon in any of your more urban areas around here, but the squeegee guys, they used to count, like when you're going into town for a sports event or something, there'd be certain intersections, maybe there's a long red at this light, and so you'd stop at the red, and immediately they'd be on your car, and they're putting the, the fluid on your windshield, and they start to squeegee your windshield. Some of them got very good, uh, because there's an expectation here, so some of them got very good at kind of putting the fluid on and then deciding based on your response whether they're going to take that off there for you. Um, <laughs> Now, I don't blame the squeegee guys. They're, they're trying to do something, and in some ways, there's something commendable about that. They're wanting to offer you something and not just ask you for something. But you learn very quickly that there's an expectation. Uh, and you learn very quickly as the recipient of that kind of thing that sometimes you almost feel like you need to be on your guard against certain forms of generosity because really they're, they're nothing more than thinly veiled attempts to obligate you to do something in return. This reciprocity ethic, this idea that I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, was very common, very strong in the Greco-Roman world that Jesus lived in, very pervasive in Jewish society of that day as well. So as Jesus sits at the table of this Pharisee, he knows well the mindset that he's addressing. One would behave in a generous way toward others in order to elicit a similar generosity in return. And conversely, if someone extended kindness or generosity to you, you would feel an obligation, even an ethical obligation, to reciprocate. Now, this reciprocity ethic is not quite so explicit in our Western cultures of today, in our way of thinking, but it is undeniably present in our world today as well. It lies just beneath the surface in so many of our social and interpersonal react, in, interactions. If we're honest, we really have to admit that there's very little we do in life that isn't somehow motivated or influenced by our own self-interest. And on certain levels, that's, that's perfectly okay. Uh, the goal of reciprocity isn't evil in and of itself. Um, there are many contexts in which it's the norm and actually the highest goal. Think of the business context, right? If I'm a business person and I'm providing a good or a service for you uh, for X number of dollars and you are happy to part with X number of dollars in exchange for that good or that service, that defines the ideal business transaction, right? And, and if that sounds like a, an endorsement of free market economic principles, it is. 
Um, but that's not my point. My point is merely to say that that's, uh, the, the goal of reciprocity is not in and of itself impure or evil. However, as Jesus so often does, he comes to us here with questions that probe deeper. They probe beneath the surface into the depths of our hearts and our motivations and push us beyond these natural human tendencies. Jesus calls us here to a selfless love that expends itself for others without regard for what they can give us in return. And I probably don't need to tell you that this doesn't come naturally for us. In our sinful nature, we are bent toward doing things that are in our own self-interest and really bent away from doing things that have no personal benefit or seem to have no personal benefit to us at all. And so against the grain of his own ancient culture, against the grain of our cultures of today, against the grain of our natural human tendencies and our sinful nature, Jesus teaches us here that true Christian generosity goes beyond the bounds of reciprocity. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of generosity that is truly Christian, by that I mean not just human generosity, just not what's just natural and normal for us as human beings, but generosity that is human Christian, this is the key characteristic. It has an intentional focus on those who can do nothing to repay it. Jesus says, you want to know whether your love is truly Christian love? Love those who have no capacity to love you in return. You want to know whether your generosity is like that of your Father in heaven? Give to those who have no capacity to repay you. This is generosity in its purest form, and Jesus wants to ensure that it is a present and visible trait in the lives of his disciples. So in the balance of our time in the Word, I just want to draw out two observations about this generosity that Jesus commends to us, uh, two characteristics of this generosity. Number one, it takes, Christ, it takes selfless, Christ-like initiative. This generosity takes selfless, Christ-like initiative. Now, contrary to the way that Jesus' words may sound to us at face value, He's not forbidding us here from having our friends over, from being loving and generous toward our family. If that's what he was commanding us, he'd literally be commanding us to violate other, other scriptures. Uh, Jesus understands that we are called to show love and generosity toward those who are closest to us. Uh, remember, he's at the table of a Pharisee. He knows what their practices are. He knows what our human tendencies are, as we've just been reflecting on. And so he's, he's using some hyperbole here. He's using some strong language to jar us out of our complacency, to jar us out of our comfort zones, and to make a point. So what point is Jesus making? Well, he's saying that as God's people, our generosity shouldn't be limited to that which is normal. It's normal to be generous toward those who can return the favor to you somehow. As disciples of Christ, we're called to take generous initiative toward those who can't repay us. And listen, I, I just love this. Precisely because they can't repay us. <laughs> I just love the way Jesus explains the reason why we shouldn't invite our friends, our family, our rich neighbors, those, those people that might be able to you know, do something for us, to our little dinner party. He says, almost like it should be intuitive to us, no, no, don't do that, don't invite them lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. I almost laugh out loud when I read that. Like, he's, he's saying that should be intuitive? Like, oh, that would be a tragedy, right? Let's say Elon Musk and his <laughs> wife invite me over to their home. I assume it's a... Or, sorry, I invite them to my home and, and, you know, we have a nice little dinner. And then they invite me to their palatial estate. And, you know, maybe after dinner, Elon says, hey, let's go up on SpaceX. This one's on me. I mean, <laughs> that would be a tragedy, right? Well, no, Jesus is not suggesting that that would be a tragedy. Uh, what he's saying is, that's the way the world thinks. That's the way the world operates. If your generosity remains only within those bounds, what difference really has the grace of God made? Read verses 13 and 14 with me again. But when you give a feast, Jesus says, 
Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. Notice he doesn't say you'll be blessed even though they can't repay you. Despite the fact that they can't repay you, don't worry, you'll still be blessed anyway. No, he says you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. There's a cause-effect relationship here. The blessing for you is the direct result of the fact that you have selected as the object of your generosity those who cannot return the favor. As you take initiative toward those who can't repay you, fully aware that they can't repay you, it's amazing, God will repay you for that very same reason. And this, Jesus said, should characterize us as Christians and distinguish us from the world. This is a characteristic that differentiates Christian generosity, Christian love, from, from love that we would think of as normal or natural in the world. Earlier in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus spoke in very similar terms when calling us to love our enemies. In fact, we have, you could turn back a few pages in your Bible, or I think we have this as a slide as well. Luke 6, beginning in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, did you follow the biblical logic there? How do we demonstrate that we are sons and daughters of the Most High? Well, it's not by doing the, the very same things that are possible and even normal apart from faith. As Jesus might say, what, what credit is that to you? How does that distinguish you from the world? The world neglects to show kindness to those who can do nothing to repay that kindness. But Jesus says to us, not so with you. It shall not be so with us as his disciples. We demonstrate that we are children of our Father in heaven and disciples of his son Jesus by taking initiative where it wouldn't be normal, where it wouldn't be natural for us to do so. By loving even our enemies. Think of that. We, we get so used to hearing those words roll off of Jesus' tongue that they don't shock us the way they probably should. Loving even our enemies, the people who hate us, the people who we would naturally hate, and by intentionally ensuring that our generosity extends to those who can do nothing to repay us. Now, let's bring the scene back to the Pharisees' table because a most profound accent is placed on Jesus' exhortation here in a very simple fact. It's a fact that goes right over the head of, of his original hearers, but we should see that it doesn't go over our heads this morning. And that fact is this. The one who's sitting at the table with them giving this exhortation is himself God incarnate. He's sitting at this table because he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, made himself nothing, took the nature of a servant, and took initiative toward those who could never repay him for his sacrifice. Soon he's about to turn his, his direction toward Jerusalem. He will endure death, even death on a cross, for those who could never repay him for his sacrifice. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're a young person being raised in a Christian home and you're weighing the, 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 the weight of these kind of scriptures on your heart, there's one thing you need to understand. You do not come to Jesus as a way of repaying God. You don't come to Jesus as a way of repaying God for the kindness that he's shown you or for the wrongs that you have done. You come to Jesus as an act of faith, believing that his death on the cross is sufficient to cover the penalty for your sins. You don't come to Jesus as a way of repaying him, but for those of us who are already in a position of faith 
this morning. I trust you see the rich gospel truth that's bound up in what Jesus is calling us to here. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Take initiative toward those who can do nothing to repay you. Lavish them with love and mercy and kindness. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he left behind the riches and glory of heaven to seek and save lost sinners like you and me. The generosity Jesus commends to us takes selfless, Christ-like initiative toward those who can do nothing to repay it. The second observation about this generosity is simply this. It's driven by faith. This generosity is driven and motivated by faith. Even as Jesus calls us here to a generosity that is not self-interested, notice that he simultaneously lifts our eyes to a reward that can only be seen through the eyes of faith. Again, verses 13 and 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Amazingly, as we put off our human tendency to be motivated by the things of this world and take initiative toward those who can do nothing to repay us in the terms of this world, Jesus promises us that we will be repaid in eternity. We embrace this reward by faith. It's not something we can see and grasp right now, but we, but we trust that the words Jesus is saying to us here are absolute truth. We trust that what we sacrifice in this life for those who can do nothing to repay us will accrue to our benefit in eternity. And this is the great paradox of giving in the kingdom of God. It is a sacrifice to give toward those who can't repay you. We shouldn't pretend that it's not a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. It will cost you something. It will cost you the ability to use those funds in some other way that might benefit you more in the here and now. But when you consider that sacrifice in light of the eternal reward Jesus promises us here, it really is no sacrifice at all. It's far better thought of as an investment. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, in a world of bank failures and cryptocurrency volatility, uh, this is an investment that is more secure than any. Now, if you think about it, there are many sacrifices we make in this life for a reward that we expect to receive later, right? I happen to be someone who loves gardening. I love to get out this time of year, actually. uh, Tomorrow, I'll be, I already got my cool weather crops in the ground. Uh, Tomorrow, I'll, Lord willing, be planting the the hot weather uh, crops, you know, tomatoes, peppers, those kind of things. I just love to get out there in the spring, get the dirt under my fingernails, and uh, really fell in love with gardening several years ago. We've got about an acre, and and I uh, decided to uh, look into perennial fruit-bearing bushes and just got a model, moderately obsessed with blueberry bushes. So we got 11 blueberry bushes on our property of different varieties. Just love growing that. I love throwing myself into all the research to find out how to make these things thrive. Well, here's what you have to do. You may know this if you've tried growing blueberries but, uh, and, and failed, as I did the first time, uh, is they, they really need to have a high... Um, acidic content in their soil. So my soil is very alkaline, so I had to basically replace the soil around the areas where where I was planting the blueberries. They have very shallow root systems, so you have to mulch with the right kind of organic materials around the top. Well, the other thing you have to do with blueberries when you plant them from little baby plants is you have to pinch the blossoms for the first three years. That's, That's the recommendation. Pinch the blossoms. Now, you may know that the blossoms are what become the berries after the bees come and do their miraculous work. And so... Uh, what you're doing by pinching those blossoms and big, like pinching them and dropping them on the ground is you're telling that plant, don't spend any of your energy producing fruit this year. Spend all of your energy developing a strong root system, strong base. And then that plant, that bush may serve you for 50 to 75 years after that. It's, you know, with moderate attention. So I was following that advice and easy. The first year, no problem. There's just a few blossoms. You pinch them off. Next year, there's, there's a good bit more. Well, I remember that third season. This is the third season when I'm supposed to pinch these blossoms again. 
And it was very tempting because the plants are looking a little more stable. There's a lot more uh, blossoms there. I could have had a few handfuls of blueberries that year, but I did as I was advised. I pinched those blossoms off because I had a future harvest in mind. Uh, last year, by the way, we picked 128 pints of these blueberries. We're giving them away. We're freezing them. We're doing all the, everything you can think of with blueberries now. And I think we're only still scratching the surface. Folks, what Jesus is saying to us here is, do you want to be satisfied with a couple of handfuls of blueberries now? Or will you believe me? Will you trust me? that what I'm telling you here is true, and that by make sacrificing that small pleasure now, you can prepare for yourself a harvest in eternity that is beyond anything you can fathom. This is a reward that can only be seen through faith. And God is pleased. I believe he's even uniquely glorified in some way when we simply take him at his word. Uh, I love that, that the phrase in that song we were singing this morning, um, Oh my goodness, I've lost it. But uh, invest in him, invest in it wasn't invest. What's the word? Venture, venture in him, venture wholly. I just love that. That just distills it down. That is what our walk of faith is supposed to be all about. Another great hymn writer uh, said, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. That's all I need to know. Lord, you said it. I'm going to fix my eyes not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, Jesus is lifting our eyes here to that eternal reward, which, though unseen, is every bit as real as the tangible sacrifice that we make. The only difference is that it's far more lasting. Well, several years ago, I became aware of a couple in my home church who were sponsoring seven children through our orphan sponsorship program that I'll, I'll tell you about uh, in just a minute. Um, now, seven is a really nice number, but when I noticed that, and by the way, I don't go looking through our database to see how many children my friends are sponsoring. I, ju I just stumbled upon this information. When I saw that, um, I wasn't as amazed by the number seven as, as I was by the fact that I know these folks and I know that they're not living, they're not uh, any kind of wealthy Americans. They're just kind of a normal middle-class family. They used to be in our community group. I know them well. So anyway, I, I came upon this information. I felt like I've got to say thanks to them. So I just dropped them a note in the mail. said, man, thanks for the sacrifices you're making to be able to sponsor seven children. Sometime later, we bumped into each other and just had a conversation about it. And I came to learn how that transpired. Um, just like most of us, when we first launched the orphan sponsorship program, they started by sponsoring one or two children. And then through the years, as the Lord prospered them, the Lord you know, gave the husband who's the breadwinner of the family an increase at work. They would just add one more child, kind of based on the principle that the Lord provided well for us last year. Now he's given us an increase. Let's share a bit of that increase with another child in need. Uh, by the way, uh, now that I am aware of this and I knew I was bringing this message, I checked in our database. They are now uh, sponsoring 18 children through our orphan sponsorship program. Uh, now listen, I, I don't mention their example as a way of suggesting that all of us should be sponsoring 18 children or that everyone should follow that practice of adding a new child every year. Uh, my point is simply to say that this is, is not a couple uh, that is rich by American standards. Uh, these, these are folks who are making a real sacrifice. These are funds that could have been used in other ways that would have enhanced their standard of living. And you know what? None of us would look at them and call them self-indulgent. But this is a couple whose eyes are fixed not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. They are sacrificing now for a reward that's being kept in heaven for them where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. I don't know about you, but I want to live my life in light of that reality. And when I think of Jesus' exhortation here to be generous toward those who can do nothing to repay us, I can't help but think of the children in our orphan sponsorship program. If you decide to sponsor children through our program, I can virtually guarantee you uh, that it will be nearly impossible they will ever be able to do anything to repay you. 
Well, this is exactly the kind of generosity that Jesus is commending to us in this passage. It's precisely this kind of generosity that he promises to repay at the resurrection of the just. And that phrase, the resurrection of the just, just puts me in mind of, of Matthew 25. I don't know about you, but the, the, the parable that Jesus tells of the sheep and the goats and, and what will happen on that last day when we all stand before him. And he'll, he'll tell us to enter into our reward because when we saw him naked, when we saw him uh, hungry, when we saw him thirsty, when we saw him sick, we visited him, we, we gave to him, and we'll say, Jesus, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you sick? When did we see you naked or thirsty? And he'll say, even as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And I just imagine in that moment, he might pull up a young lady by his side and say, I want to introduce you to Chalcedon. Chalcedon was born in Ethiopia. She was born with HIV. She lost both parents to AIDS. She was on a trajectory to die of AIDS herself. But you invested into her life, and you preserved her life. And this gave an opportunity for a woman named Helena to come into her life and share Jesus with her. Helena led Chalcedon to faith. Chalcedon is here today because you gave when there was nothing she could give you in return. Or maybe he'll pull up a young man by his side and say, I want you to know Charles. Charles was a student at Lighthouse Christian School. You invested into that school. You invested into his life. He came to know Jesus at a VBS they held at Lighthouse. And later he went to college on a college scholarship and was able to become a teacher himself and influence the lives of so many other students, all because you gave when there was nothing he could do to repay you. Brothers and sisters, think of the ripple effects through eternity. Think of the children and grandchildren of the children we're sponsoring now. This is sometime, something I, I like to do every now and then, just kind of dream into the future. When the children that we're sponsoring now are parents and grandparents, and they're influencing the lives of future generations because someone introduced them to Jesus when they were children just running around in the community with very little care. Well, I believe part of our reward will be the joy of seeing with the eyes of eternity the full eternal impact that our acts of generosity and kindness in this life were able to achieve. Now, it takes the eyes of faith to see that in the here and now. And I couldn't be more grateful for the faith that God has given to so many who have invested generously into the lives of our children for more than 20 years now. So I want to go ahead and just start introducing the Ministry of Covenant Mercies. We did uh, pass our 20th anniversary last year, and right from the beginning, the centerpiece of our uh, ministry has been what we call our Orphan Sponsorship Program. Uh, this is a program whereby you can sponsor a child for $39 a month, similar in, in its you know, monthly giving to other sponsorship programs that you may have heard of. Um, and then you can sponsor a child in Uganda, Ethiopia, Zambia, most recently Liberia, where we have established church partnerships with indigenous churches on the ground. And then we build teams within those, those church partners that go out into their own community to deliver care to the children in their extended families. So uh, the children in our program live, uh, well, first of all, uh, for the purposes of our program, we uh, identify an orphan as a fatherless child. So uh, sometimes the children still have their mother with them, and then we work to uh, maintain that family unit. Other times they've lost both parents, and we, uh, uh, we support the children within the context of the grandmother's home or an aunt or an uncle, some family member who has taken the children in. Uh, and our church partners are very adept at identifying these families in need in their own communities. So it presents a great opportunity for those churches to wrap that whole family into the, the broader mission of their church. Uh, through our program, we just provide some basic nutritional, medical, and educational support, uh, critically making sure that the children receive a quality education uh, so that they can... Um, break out of these cycles of poverty that so often entrap them. Uh, we're, we're at an exciting time in our ministry, being 20 years old. We are seeing some of the younger, some of the children uh, who we began with when they were younger, almost 20 years ago, now graduating from our program. So it's been a great opportunity for us to have some of them tell their own stories. And I want to introduce you to a young lady named Masai, uh, who's a graduate of our program in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.
Sami Messiah Bonnet. My name is Messiah Ayala. I was born in Addis Ababa. I'm 17 years old. The reason we came to Covenant Mercies is because we were in trouble. My dad died, and then my mom couldn't find a job. We didn't have anything in the house, so we left and went to the street. That's when Covenant Mercies found us. They helped me attend school. They got us to where we are now. Messiah had a little fight with her mom. It was very, like, minor thing. And then uh, she said bad things about her mom, and then she was cursing her, she was feeling really bad, and then she left the house. When I got on the street, I couldn't find a place to spend the night. I stayed three weeks on the street, and then I found some girls, and they befriended me. And we begged people to give us money to pay for bed each night. Helena kept calling my mom, and she couldn't find me for a long time. So my mom came and found me where I used to live. She told me, Helena been looking for you. She wants to talk to you. So in our meeting, Masai was, she was, she was so stubborn. She said she doesn't want to. There is no need for her to talk to us, but she just simply came here to tell us that she don't want, she doesn't want to be part of the program. I told her, I want to get out of the sponsorship, delete my name. I was going to leave, and she said, okay, let's pray before you leave. But then I asked her if it's okay for us to pray, and then we prayed, and surprisingly, after the prayer, she was a different person. And then when I asked her to write her goals, the, the goals she was writing was completely different. Like she was saying she, she wants to go back to school, make peace with her mother, and then start old friendships with uh, healthy friends, and then uh, start studying hairstyling, which is her dream. Since I returned to the Lord, He has done a lot of great things in my life. I read my Bible, I go to church, and I attend some of the Bible classes. Those are great times. The Lord has done great things in my life. Now my relationship with my family is so much better than it was before. It's joyful. Before, we didn't have peace in the house. But now we all love each other and live together in peace. After I finish school, I want to help people who are like I used to be. What I want to say to my sponsors, I run out of words when I think about them. May God repay them. May God give them all kinds of good gifts. The Lord is great and He will do great things in my life. I know that. There are many reasons why I love to uh, show that video as a way of introducing our program. I mean, obviously, Masai's deep gratitude to her sponsors is part of that. She knows uh, what a difference her sponsorship made and what a danger she put herself in by going to the street. I also love the fact that you get to be introduced to some of our competent and godly indigenous leaders. So Helena who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. She doesn't give up on this one. She prays for her, and then the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can do and just changes this young woman's heart. 
Um, so if, and I, I love introducing our program through a, a video like that. Even, even the, uh, the, the family context as well just shows you the importance of this family unit staying together. She's got younger brothers and sisters as well who are sponsored. Uh, well, through 20 years of ministry in sub-Saharan Africa and more than 15 years of, of good fruit from our relationship with Lighthouse Christian School, the partnership we, we developed with Lighthouse Christian School in Zambia, and I think you're going to be looking at a picture of Wilbrod and Ziki Chanda here who are the founders of Lighthouse Christian School in a city called Ndola, Zambia. Uh, we learned through our partnership with them, especially, that investing more directly into the children's education and an intentional focus on actually developing the schools where our children receive their education, rather than just paying their school fees to go to government schools, uh, can have a tremendous impact on their lives. From day one, education has been critical. It's kind of obvious that if children are, are growing up in extreme poverty and they're going to have an opportunity to break out of that cycle, they'll need to have a good education. So we've always paid their school fees, keep them in school, uh, provide the books and, and uniforms and all those things that are necessary. Uh, but through our partnership with Lighthouse, we began to make a much more significant uh, investment into education. I'm going to come back. Uh, actually, uh, let me show you a real quick photo of an outdoor classroom. So this is not an uncommon sight at all. Actually, the most uncommon thing about this is the number of desks that you see. More often, you'll just see 100 students or so under a tree uh, sitting on, on the ground while the teacher tries to teach this large group of students. And uh, for us, where we define our mission in the life of each and every child as uh, to restore them, to see them restored to everything God has created them to be as his image bearer. So we believe that our children have gifts and abilities that they are meant to cultivate, and, and God has given those gifts to them with a purpose for their lives. And so that being our goal, uh, 100 students in a single classroom is a major obstacle for us. So that's why we're going to come back to Zambia later, but that's why a few years ago, in, in early 2019, uh, we broke ground on Hope Community Primary School in Kibora. This is in western Uganda. Uh, you're looking at groundbreaking day. That guy with the big smile on his face on the right is Moses Nkwatsibwe. He's our partner pastor there. And uh, we have more than 500 children who are sponsored in uh, Kibora. Um, and so we were wanting to invest more uh, adequately into their education. And uh, forgive me, can I get a little more light on the pulpit here? I, I'm getting old. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and so uh, in a this, this groundbreaking day in 2019... Uh, was after working with a team of engineers in 2018 to uh, develop a comprehensive site plan. And so right now you're looking at the uh, site plan for Hope Community Primary School, which we've made some significant progress on that that you'll see in a moment. But this is our plan over the years to roll this out and then to grow the school uh, grade by grade. So we opened Hope Community Primary in early 2020. Uh, February 2020, that's when the school year begins there. And so we got a picture of the kindergarten class in February 2020. We, we opened for uh, about 90 students in grades pre-K through grade one. And then our plan is just to add one new grade each year. So right now we are up to pre-K through grade three, about 132 students in the school. And Lord willing, we'll just keep adding one new grade each year. Uh, now, what we're able to uh, provide and, and offer to our children growing up in this rural area is really uh, transformational. This school enables us to bring quality education with well-qualified instructors and well-supplied classrooms uh, to a severely underserved population. And it gives us, as Covenant Mercies and our team on the ground there, a Monday through Friday Christ-centered context where we can constantly be investing in the gospel uh, efforts in, in our children's lives and even have an, an opportunity to shape their character development from a, a young age. Um, I want to go ahead and roll a quick video of Hope Community Primary School that introduces you to the head teacher there, Rosabella, and also gets you up above with a drone, up above the campus. It's a very hilly terrain there, so it'll give you a chance to see how this school has been developed so far. Welcome to Hope Community Primary School. I'm called Sabit Rosabella, the head teacher of this school. My purpose here is... Uh, 
to direct my staff on what they are supposed to do and be in the vision of the school. Thank you so much for loving us, for supporting us, and supporting our children. You're welcome to home. <laughs> so uh, thank you for, in, I heard enough laughter to know you liked that gratuitous amount of soccer footage that we had in there. Um, well, a couple of years ago, uh, one of our newsletters featured the story of a young man named Alex Karahanga, a young man from this very Kibora community. Uh, when we first met Alex in 2008, uh, he was in a dark place in his life. You're, you're looking at a, a photo of Alex circa 2008 as, as just a young boy. Uh, he had recently lost his father to AIDS. Uh, his mother was also HIV positive and struggling to stay alive to care for her two young children. Uh, well, through the efforts of our team on the ground there, Alex's mother was able to begin receiving treatment for her HIV, and she responded very quickly to that and was restored to good health. Thank God she's still with us today. Um, Alex, uh, despite this, continued to struggle in his heart, and he really uh, went through a, a difficult period where he was uh, known to be disruptive in school, uh, known to struggle with his teachers and his classmates. He frequently skipped school and was uh, very close to being expelled from his secondary school uh, as he, as he kind of developed a reputation in this way. But by, by 2012, uh, when he was nearly expelled, uh, the team there just really continued to uh, reach out to him and invest into his life. And by God's grace, in 2013, uh, the Lord opened Alex's heart to the gospel. Uh, he immediately joined a discipleship course in our partner church led by Moses and Kwatsibwe, who you saw earlier. And the good fruit of the gospel in Alex's life became immediately evident. Uh, by 2013, by the end of 2013, he had transformed into one of the most trustworthy students in the school. In fact, he was given the, the title head boy. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You're probably familiar that, with that from a school called Hogwarts, if you are at all. Um, in Uganda, they have an inheritance of the British school system. So he was uh, given the title of head boy, which is uh, given to one of the most exemplary student leaders. And he even went on a mission team the next year to our program area in the, in the eastern part of the country to minister to students his age. Uh, this is the way Alex looks back on that time in his life now, if you talk to him now. He says, these are his words, quote, My life changed when I got saved in 2013 and was introduced to the gospel and discipleship. Jesus humbled me, and I value my, now I value my life and, and the support I receive from Covenant Mercies, which is by grace. My mother also receives HIV care through Covenant Mercies, and she's very healthy and strong. I am so grateful to God for changing my life and favoring me, and to Covenant Mercies for extending the helping hand of God to me. I will never be the same again. Well, Alex later graduated from a technical institute with honors and a certificate in plumbing, and then he later upgraded that to uh, water engineering and used those skills to help us develop the water system on the campus of uh, Hope Community Primary School. We got a picture of Alex at work on that system. Um, since then, he has joined the military, and what I'm told is, is uh, he's, uh, he's uh, 
had a lot of favor with his officers, and he's been sent back to school on an officer training track at this day. So he's a graduate of our program now, but I'm going to keep boasting about him for uh, many years to come. It's just amazing what the Lord has done in this young man's life. And he's just one example of the difference that you can make as a sponsor. If, if, if you would decide to sponsor children uh, through our program, what you're doing is setting in motion the gospel outreach and the personal care and discipleship of our indigenous church partners and our indigenous staff. And the Lord has used them amazingly in Alex's life. Uh, what I want to emphasize here is that it all started with one sponsor's gracious decision to invest into his life, invest in his life when there was nothing he could give them in return. Well, when I spoke earlier of, of uh, Hope Community in Uganda, I've referenced Lighthouse Christian School in Zambia because really, as we developed that school in Uganda, it's the model that we've developed in Zambia with Lighthouse that we're seeking to replicate. Uh, we first began partnering with Lighthouse Christian School in 2006, sponsoring a single classroom of kindergarten students, and then just like we're doing in Uganda now, we just added one new grade each year uh, to the point where we're now sponsoring more than 300 students each and every year to receive their education through Lighthouse. Uh, and we've also worked with our partners there to buy land and to build out the campus through the years as well. As the school uh, student body has grown, we've also grown the campus to accommodate those needs. Uh, just last year, we had the opportunity to open the newest building on the campus of Lighthouse Christian School. This, this uh, building, you're looking at Zicky Chanda there in the center, who's the head of school, and just kind of the Lean and Mean Covenant Mercies team. There's a much larger team when you consider the teachers in all those classrooms. Um, but uh, this new building that they're standing in front of has a spacious assembly hall where we can gather the whole student body at once, and they do chapel services and things like that. Uh, it has a library, a computer lab, science lab. Uh, I just love the fact that we've got this beautiful library in there. It is the only lending library for children that we're aware of in all of Ndola, and we've been able to provide that through the generosity of, of our partners uh, to the children in our program there. Well, it's, it's an impressive structure, and honestly, um, I love showing pictures of these impressive structures, but I don't want to give the impression that what we're all about is developing impressive buildings and campus infrastructure. Uh, what we're really all about is developing young lives. Uh, we are all about equipping these young people who God has created with gifts and with a purpose. Uh, we're, we're equipping them to cultivate those gifts for God's glory and for their own good. Um, and I want to tell you real briefly as we turn a corner toward the conclusion about a young man named Michael Nkata, who's a product of Lighthouse Christian School in Zambia. Uh, we first got to know Michael when he was enrolled in our sponsorship program back in 2008. He was in the second grade. He'd lost both of his parents, and he was taken in by a, uh, an aunt. So you're looking at Michael circa 2008 right there. Um, fast forwarding through the years, the teachers very quickly noticed this kid's, this kid's smart. He's got a lot of gifts. Let's really keep our eye on him. He uh, rises through uh, Lighthouse Christian School, goes to secondary school, finishes his grade 12 exams, and he, he uh, excels on his college entrance exams. The government of Zambia actually gave him a 75% scholarship uh, for pre-med studies at the University of Zambia. We in Covenant Mercies had recently, recently launched what we call the Mapalo, Scun, uh, Mapalo Scholarship Fund for Higher Education. Uh, Mapalo is a word that means blessing. And so the students who graduate from our sponsorship program are now able to apply for a, a scholarship for higher ed studies. Sponsorship program takes them through grade 12 or the vocational school equivalent. Then they can apply. And uh, so we were happy to give the additional 25% to Michael so he could go to the University of Zambia in pre-med studies. Uh, in Michael's Mapalo scholarship application, he wrote these words that, uh, that uh, about his desire to be a doctor and his desire to serve the underserved as a doctor. He described that in the following way. He said, being an orphan and being raised in a community of people with low social status has made me want to study hard and be a person who came from such a background and still made it in life and be able to give hope to people where hope has died. 
And I just remember reading that on Michael's application and thinking, you know what? He is able to pursue that dream today because somebody gave him hope where his hope might have died. Uh, And because someone gave him that hope in the name of Jesus, someone gave him that hope motivated by the love of Jesus who gave us hope, who made a sacrifice for us that we could never repay. Now, there are many ways that uh, you could apply this word this morning, and I'm not here today uh, to stand in the way of anything the Holy Spirit's doing, say, no, covenant mercies is the only way. There are many ways, and I pray the Holy Spirit is applying this morning's word in your hearts in those many faceted ways. But I do want to invite you to consider uh, whether you would join hands with Covenant Mercies in some of the things that we're doing and join hands with us in really seeing our Heavenly Father transform the lives of these young people for time and eternity. Uh, Your sponsorship of children uh, will mobilize partners like Moses and Kwatsibwe, like Helena and the team in Ethiopia, uh, into the children's lives and give opportunities to them to, to minister the gospel to these children along with caring for their practical needs. Uh, your investment into the schools that we're developing uh, enables us to provide quality Christian education to these students. And, uh, and by the way, we, we don't use any of the sponsorship funds to build those school buildings. We're finding other ways to raise those funds so we can uh, keep the sponsorship giving really a one-to-one correlation between sponsor and child. Uh, Years down the road, after we've invested into their early education by developing these schools, we trust that many more of them will apply and be eligible for these Mapalo scholarships. So we're building that day with uh, that fund with, with that future day in mind. And in the end, we trust that these young people will become influencers in their families, in their communities, in their workplaces, in their churches. And uh, Lord willing, those ripple effects that we were dreaming out loud about earlier will take effect and we'll only see them fully in eternity. Well, you probably saw on the way in, there's a Covenant Mercies table in the back. I will be back there afterwards. I would be thrilled to talk to you, answer any questions that you may have. Uh, There are profiles on the table of children who are awaiting sponsors. If you'd be interested in sponsorship, you can read through some of those profiles and and, uh, make a decision. I also brought these uh, beautiful True Africa books with us, uh, with me. Um, These books are heavy, so if you would lighten my load on the flight home, I would really be grateful. (laughs) Um, They're also a little pricier, but we sell those for $65, but uh, it's just a way of investing into uh, the ministry and and some of those those other projects that that we're working toward outside of sponsorship. We also have these beautiful t-shirts, Do Not Despise Small Beginnings. We adopted that phrase as our 20th anniversary theme last year, and uh, we have those available at the, at the back as well. Regardless of whether you decide to join hands specifically with Covenant Mercies this morning, may we all be uh, people who increasingly grow in uh, being disciples uh, who take selfless initiative toward those who could do nothing for us in return, confident with the confidence of faith that God himself will repay us at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you came to us. You came to us when there was nothing we could give you in return. Even now, Lord, there's nothing we can bring you in return. We, we give you our lives not as a way of repaying you, but, Lord, as a way of, of demonstrating our trust in you, Lord, that, that uh, you have delivered us, you will deliver us, and you will reward us as we continue to seek you and continue to live our lives Uh, in accordance with your kingdom values. So, Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for changing our lives and our hearts. Thank you for the opportunities you now give us as your sons and your daughters to minister this same love and mercy to others. Lord, give us the grace to do it in your name. Amen.